I have Jeff here with us today. Um, Jeff, thanks for joining us. You bet. And why don't you start by just kind of telling us a little bit about yourself and where you come from. Sure. Uh, how far back do you want me to go? Uh, it's up to you. Okay. Um, maybe for some context later in our conversation, if I'm sharing stories or referencing something from my, my past, it would be easier just to go all the way back and then chronologically work up to today. Um, so born and raised in Idaho, um, on a farm, um, lived in, in such poverty. I'm the youngest of eight kids Mm. and my dad had a a federal government job and, um, and then my mom was a stay at home mom. And uh, we lived in such poverty that we would live off the land that, that we owned. And mm. so what we could source from the garden and from the fruit trees that we had on our land, um, from the chickens and pigs that we had, mm. um, that would carry us through the six-month winters that we, um, wow. that we experienced there. And, uh, you know, so my childhood um, never felt like I went without anything. It was, I guess you'd say my parents had a knack for making us feel like we were blessed um, not with material wealth necessarily because there wouldn't be evidence for that but with um, people being in your life and caring about you and interacting with you and um, so yeah great childhood um, in southeast Idaho and then um, went to Utah State for my undergrad uh, years I majored in, in psychology and minored in sociology they required you to have a minor. I wouldn't have chosen that myself. I probably wouldn't have minored in anything. Um, but the program required you to have a minor, so I chose sociology because it satisfied. There were like uh, classes with dual credits that I could get uh, okay. psychology uh-huh. and sociology satisfied in, in one uh, tuition payment. So that was the cheapest and quickest way uh, to get through the program. Um, after Why did you decide on majoring in psychology? Um... At, at some point, I would say around age 18 or 19, I got very interested in particularly why my brother, who's two and a half years older than me, and I were so different, mm. yet we share parents, uh, grew up in the same home, grew up in the same community. Mm. Um, expectations by the authority figures in our lives were similar. We even had same teachers through elementary, <laughs> junior high school, and high school. Uh-huh. And so we were exposed to uh, largely overlapping childhoods, and yet we couldn't be more different. Um, he went into computer science. Um, he's a coder for Hewlett Packard in, in Boise, and um, I played sports. I pursued a, a baseball career, and um, so I wanted to be as physically active at, as often and for as long a time as possible. Uh-huh. And he wanted a nine to five in a cubicle. And he thought that that um, security and the consistency of a life like that mm-hmm. was um, a success for him. And so I got really interested uh, how, you know, that nature versus nurture, I guess, uh-huh. argument uh-huh. of how in the world did we uh, come out so different. Okay. And our, our goals in life and what... Um, we were interested in and what energized us were just so different. Um, so yeah, so psychology took me to Utah. I went to Utah State, um, studied psychology there, and that's when I got married. And um, my wife is from Texas, and we and we actually met down in in Texas when I was working between uh, academic years. I was just down there for a summer job, and attended the same church and ended up meeting there. And then we got married up in Utah, and we spent the first. Um, two years of our marriage there in in Logan, Utah. 
And she had her prerequisites done by the time she graduated high school to attend a, uh, a private local nursing program down in Texas where she was from. Mm-hmm. So it made sense that um, after I graduated from Logan and I or from Utah State and Logan, and, and we didn't have any like job prospects, you can't get a job with a bachelor's in psychology, <laughs> no. um, that we would go back to Texas and, and pursue her nursing education. Huh. So we moved down to Lubbock. Uh, Texas, which is in kind of the panhandle, um, flat desert area. And we lived down there for about nine years. And during those years, um, my wife uh, went to nursing school while I worked for uh, Child Protective Services. With a bachelor's? With my bachelor's, Uh yep. And that was the the bare minimum requirement to have that level of job. Uh And it was a real blessing for us because, like I said, it's hard to find something in, in some employment that's actually going to use uh, a bachelor's degree in psychology. Uh-huh. Um, the sociology classes actually informed me more from my child protective services uh, responsibilities. Hmm. But, you know, the interpersonal skills, the communication skills, being able to write um, case documents and stuff it was, you know, my education did did help me be successful with CPS. Um and then my wife graduated. Uh, we had our first kid. She went in um, to, to be a nurse while I had a little bit of a, a course change from Child Protective Services. While I was working there, I noticed how influential um, counselors, like LPC, a licensed professional counselor, hmm. how influential they were and helpful they were in the lives of both parents that had lost custody of their children and the children that were put into foster care. Hmm. And, and um, that, I mean, that is a really difficult time in the lives of both kids and, and uh-huh. these parents. Yeah. And the counselors helped them work through that and, and minimize the damage that was being done from a family being torn apart. And hmm. I was like, wow, that's a cool job. Hmm. Um, I, they would testify in court uh-huh. as to the best interest of the child. Um, they were typically the default of a counselor working on a case with CPS was family reunification as the the outcome goal of the uh-huh. case. And I was like, you know, this was a family-oriented industry that mm-hmm. wanted it to try everything possible to get parents and children together and keep them together with, you know, life skills and um, behavioral intervention and, and a better understanding of what kids need. Yeah. And, uh, and so... After three years with CPS, my wife was working as a nurse. I, I told her, like, I have been really moved by what counselors have been able to do in the lives of those that are experiencing extreme distress. And that I would like to pursue that as psychology seems to be a, a, a um, very um, typical prerequisite for a master's in uh-huh. counseling. Uh-huh. And so we put together an application for a local university called Lubbock Christian University. Okay. And there I per, I got my master's. Okay. Okay, so we're up to about Question. Yes, go ahead. Did you when you went in to get your master's to become a counselor, did you go with it with the mindset of working primarily within uh, like custodial cases and family reunification? Um, at the time? No. Okay. No, not primarily, but um I wasn't against it, uh-huh. and there was an extreme need for it. Uh-huh. So the the career goal at the time was to have a private practice mm-hmm. to serve the community and to curate what my interests were professionally while potentially backing myself with CPS cases mm-hmm. because those contracts, although they don't pay well, 
it's uh, never ending. There's mm. always circulation in CPS contracts. And it just so happened that really one office in town, um, a psychologist, mm. uh, she held north of 90% of the CPS contracts. Wow. So it, it created a really stable practice for her. Mm. Uh, high stress. Yeah. Um, a lot of a lot of counselors that would be underneath her um, would rotate in and out of the office because they'd burn out quickly. And I wonder how many, how many, if the goal, if if one of the goals is family reunification, I wonder how many cases actually end up in for for her to hold ninety percent of those clients, and I wonder how many of the cases she actually saw end well. You know. Yeah, well-being, family reunification, right? right? Um, yeah. I don't know the exact numbers, but I do know that it was less than half. Mm. That's uh, sad. Yeah. So, so there's a real benefit to having one person if he or she can deal with that mm. and be able to maintain a high professional standard of, of practice and care mm-hmm. that you don't have to spread that heartache and difficulty across too many people that, that might um, bog them down. Yeah. Not saying they're incapable of dealing with that, but she did have a particular strength in being at peace with um, what was best for the children, even if that didn't mean going home. If uh-huh. that meant uh, becoming eligible for uh, adoption, yeah. she had a particular um, uh, uh, temperament that dealt well with that outcome, mm. and and perhaps that's how she found her niche. Uh-huh. It might be like a like a Makes sex sense. counselor yeah. that a lot of times that's a very hard topic for a uh-huh. lot of professionals uh-huh. that are competent in other areas. But once you address that within a marriage, within a relationship, it, it gets really hard for them to navigate that world. Mm. There are some that are wired just to handle that like uh, it's an, just another day at work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, was, I just read last night about this counselor who he grew up in a home that lacked any type of arguing or raising of voices or yelling and so when it came to therapy he had a harder time with that than a lot of other people and that's just like everyone has kind of a natural leaning um and so yeah maybe for her her natural leaning she was able to maybe compartmentalize or somehow uh, i'm okay with this if this is how it has to turn out um something like that i don't know so when I when I was looking into Regent, uh, and I was looking into also furthering from my bachelor's degree onward, I was I didn't really know anything about what what a master's degree would give me, what a PsyD would give me, what a PhD would give me. Uh, and you went through a master's program, mm-hmm. and you, so can you go ahead and uh, tell us about what that entails? Yeah. Um, okay. So. I was first um, drawn to the master's level education mm-hmm. because of the LPCs in particular that were working cases in tandem with me um, on with CPS families. And so I got thinking if my goals are to uh, perform professionally like these other LPCs, the master's level education is what I need to get mm-hmm. licensed. I pursued that and what happened was um, it's a three-year program to get your master's in counseling, or it, it was at the time. I still think it is. But okay. It was a three-year program that I attended, and the second and third years are pretty practica and internship heavy. You mm-hmm. get a lot of clinical hours. I think by the time I graduated, I had like 1,250, something like that. It was, it was really high. Uh-huh. It was a KCREP accredited program, which I've, I've heard is kind of the gold standard um, master's level accreditation for mental health, okay. uh, kind of like APA would be for psychology. Uh-huh. 
And so there's a high level of, of practicing internship hours. And what, what I ended up getting exposed to was this psychologist that held the CPS contracts had me my second year. And I was under her supervision. Oh, really? So, yep. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. So um, I ended up I ended up being able to see what she was capable of performing professionally mm. that the LPCs weren't. So she would do psychological evals. She would do psychosocial evals. She would do uh, uh, diagnostics. Mm. Um, and she was she carried more weight when she testified in court. She just did it. I don't know if it was the right letters after her name. I don't know if it was her distinguished career. At that point, she'd been practicing for 35 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a real reputation there. But what, whatever it was, maybe the, the, all of those variables combined, but she was she really carried a lot of, of weight in the world of um, uh, the outcomes of CPS cases. And so... It, but her, the work that she was performing, I didn't necessarily love. And so I was actually, at the time, extremely happy I chose the master's level okay. and the, um, the counseling uh, area of practice. The work that she was performing, meaning testing and stuff like that? The, the testing. Okay. And then she would refer basically down uh-huh. in the hierarchy of the office. She would refer down for the counseling, the uh-huh. therapy. Her recommendation section would then be put into action by the counselors, hmm. mostly. Okay. And so I was like, oh yeah, because it was um, it was very um, almost like a cold relationship she would mm. have, where she would be uh, she would have these individuals in her office. She would assess them. She would write these lengthy reports on them. She would even testify down the road on them. But in the interim, it was mm. a hands off. She would she would have them seen by somebody uh-huh. else. And assessments are cold anyways, right? They are. Yeah. Yeah. Highly structured, uh-huh. highly standardized. Um, you can't really. Um, the therapeutic assessment is something that I'm a big fan of. But, yeah, that's really interesting. But it, yes, because assessment is naturally cold. Okay, uh-huh. so I was really happy that I chose the the master's level avenue. I thought that that was going to check a lot of professional goals off for me. Mm-hmm. Third year, I get put into a place called Shiloh Christian Counseling, uh-huh. and at Shiloh, I was actually supervised by an LPC S, which is for supervisor, and um, in house they had a PsyD. Uh, clinical psychologist and he did zero CPS contracts and so I got to I got to ask him questions he was really approachable he told me um, I I met him my first or second week in the office and he's like my door is always open um, because I think we were the only two males in the office and there were like 12 providers so it was like 10 females and two males and so he's he's probably begging me like come talk let's just connect a little bit and and so I did I really used that opportunity to ask him questions like what does his day-to-day life consist of um what's his name uh it was Gaston Rougineau it was a French name kind of a kind of really cool last name but it ended in E-A-U-X real French um but Gaston he's actually opened his own private practice since then in Lubbock. Okay. Um, and he went to a school, I think it was called Forest University in Missouri, that has since closed. So I, I don't know what that means, but whatever. <laughs> um, so I got asking him, like, what does his professional life look like? Uh-huh. You know, let's take a sample of like 60 days. What, uh, you know, of those two months, like, what are you doing? And a lot more of it was um, assessment to therapy. Okay. And he was keeping recommendations that he was competent um, following through on. He was keeping them in house mm-hmm. for his own for his own clients. Uh-huh. And I I got really intrigued by that um, difference in in what your um, professional activities look like versus Dr. Wilbanks, mm-hmm. who was the other psychologist, and and just 
basically assessments and reports and testifying. And so I, I was at Shiloh for a year and then I decided um, that I was going to open my own private practice because the business model of Shiloh was that you pay in 25% of your income to the office and you keep 75% of it. Um, I got thinking I'm willing to take the risk and keep liability on, on myself for the health of a practice and save that 25%. Um, and so I opened my own private practice so that all all payments, you know, basically uh, remain. When you worked at Shiloh, in a master's program, when you're going through practica and internship, do you get paid pretty good? It all depends okay. on what your supervisor is willing. It's a, yeah, so you can negotiate. You uh -huh. can uh, you'll sign a contract based on your negotiations that that detail uh -huh. uh, what you get paid at uh, Dr. Wilbanks' office. Um, I actually got paid fairly well there. I think it was she decided it was going to match what Medicaid was paying out. Mm -hmm. So she was Medicaid heavy since they were CPS cases. All these children and parents actually qualify for state health insurance because of the the nature of their cases being open. Uh -huh. And so, you know, they have the kids get like CHIP and Medicaid and a lot of those uh, welfare services. And that was something like $54 a session, okay. um, which as a student is really, really, yeah, really good. Yeah. And she was matching that because she thought that that was fair, but that was about as low in the industry as you would get paid for your services. Okay. Kind of starting at about $50 and moving up to 120 uh -huh. if you're like a seasoned when you say that working for Shiloh, you pay in what you say twenty five percent, and then what do you what do you mean? Okay, so if, if a client came in and they were a forty dollar per session uh -huh. um, fee, uh -huh. ten ten of those dollars would go into Shiloh for like the the lease on the building and for the uh -huh. front staff. Uh -huh. So everybody had the same. Uh, you you keep seventy five percent. You pay in twenty five percent to the business. Okay. Now Shiloh had a a really good reputation, mm -hmm. and they had quite a list of providers with a lot of different specialties, and so the community referred schools referred a lot, pediatricians offices referred a lot, churches referred a lot. Shiloh was a really good place where, if you didn't want to put in any work of finding clients or re necessarily retaining them, uh -huh. um, it was a good place to kind of guarantee your income. Mm -hmm. Okay. But with that 25% upfront loss, uh -huh. and then you have taxes, because you were a 1099 employee, so you would just contract with Shiloh. Uh -huh. um, you know, you're only walking home with 50% of your, mm. of your um, billable mm. fee. And when you opened your own private practice, did you have a similar where people who worked with you would pay in like a certain amount? I never, I never had any other providers. It was just me. Oh, okay. It was just me, and I would, I would run the books. I would do the, um, wow. the calls to, to schools and, and medical offices and churches. I had a couple really cool contracts. One was with um, a local attorney's office that was an injury attorney, hmm. and after going through like a car accident or um, a head injury at work or something like that, while he was working the legal side of compensation, I was working the mental health side. That was one cool contract. Yeah. Another one was a physical therapist office uh -huh. where a lot of times people would be referred there for like sports injuries or car accidents or something where where their body was damaged, yeah. but the, the mental toll, uh -huh. um, so they would refer to me. And then a third one was a church huh. where um, because I, I had a reputation of being a Christian counselor, hmm. not necessarily being tied to Shiloh, but I marketed myself that way. 
West Texas is very, <laughs> uh, very spiritually oriented as yeah. a community. And so I marketed myself as a Christian counselor, and I was more than happy integrating that in my, my practice. A, a local church would uh-huh. refer um, a lot of couples to me. Was it, um, I imagine opening up your own private practice and never having opened a business before. Was it, uh, was it dreading, like dreadful at all? Or was it, diff- how, what was that road like? Yeah, yeah. Um, I learned a lot. It was, it was <laughs> like, there's almost no way to have someone sit down and describe the process to you. Uh-huh and have it make a lot of sense. Because what I did is I established a limited liability corporation, so an LLC. So I was Lubbock Life Tech LLC, and that's with the state. And you gotta choose a name that hasn't been chosen, you gotta do a bunch of stuff. So I actually didn't wanna be called Lubbock Life Tech, that was like option five. My submissions to the state office kept getting denied because they're like, no, that name is either taken or too similar to what it's already established. So um, So even the name of your office was even you had to get approval for it? Yes. Yeah. Interesting. And then for, for tax purposes, right, then uh-huh. um, I established it as an LLC so that for um, liability, if I were to get sued, uh-huh. then it would only be assets of the company that could be available for payout um, in the case in case I lost um, the lawsuit or needed to pay compensation. It would only be what Lubbock Life Tech was worth hmm. which was next to nothing it was like <laughs> it was like a couch a couple bookshelves a couple lamps um never got sued you know i didn't have yeah, to go okay. down that route but yeah. establishing an llc is a liability shield hmm. so you you shield yourself from having your personal assets um available for seizure that makes sense yeah, yeah. and and i that there were some folks that i consulted with that had established businesses um, rental properties or um, even like the like water dispensaries where you can go and like get cold clean water uh-huh. in like a five gallon jug you know uh-huh. there's like a spigot and you fill it up yeah. um, people that set those stands up they they said look establish an LLC because so and so didn't do that and their house got taken from them or a vehicle got paid wow. you know as as a, a type of um, collateral mm-hmm. in the case mm-hmm. that they needed a, a certain dollar amount of payout yeah. and the banks were willing to seize some of their personal assets oh. I didn't want to go down that road no. that sounds like a nightmare yeah. so yeah establishing that and making sure that my intake paperwork was legally binding mm-hmm. and that um, confidentiality was put in terms that would hold up in court um, so much. A lot of things, yes. And and until you go through it and you actually see how the sausage is made, just explaining it, you're like, it. Um, I think it's hard to visualize exactly what all of those things that are required to set up a, a private practice look like. Uh-huh. But truth be told, in hindsight, it's not that complicated. It's just one step at a time. Mm. Uh, you know, establish your LLC first, and then and then make sure you consult with an attorney to make sure that your paperwork is done correctly. Uh-huh. And, um, once it's all said and done, it, I mean, a matter of 45 days, you know, six weeks and you can really, um, get your thing off and running. I heard, I don't remember how long of a period of time, but there's like this rule of thumb that when you open up your own business or restaurant or whatever it might be, that don't expect to see any profit like, uh, on the positive side. Cause yeah. is, how was that? Did that hold true? I don't know. 
So it didn't hold true for me, uh-huh. and I think that was because I didn't have employees or or upfront overhead that okay. was excessive. So if you're opening a restaurant, I think the rule of thumb is you won't cut a paycheck for until the third year. Okay. Something like that's right. what I've heard. Uh-huh. But that's when you have a payroll, and that's when you have a, a lease on land mm. because you need to you need to have some type of building. Um, that's when you have equipment um, that you've put on some type of loan. Uh-huh. So my overhead was so low, and I worked out a really cool deal. There was a, um, a local gym, and I did my master's thesis on eating disorders. And so I was one of just two or three local mental health providers that even knew what they were kind of doing in the world. There, there were two experts. There were two experts. One of them was actually a faculty member at Lubbock Christian University, uh-huh. and she was the one that nudged me in the direction of, of – um, learning to treat eating disorders because she thought that I was wired well for it. Mm. A lot of our conversations were, what about this? What about that? And she's like, you know, you're handling this uh, really dark underbelly of society really well. Mm. You should consider dealing with eating disorders. So you kind of had a natural leaning in that way. Yeah, there you go. So a niche, a Uh niche and an underserviced um, part of mental health, I think, Uh is eating disorders. They're very closeted Mm. behaviors and and issues. Okay, so I did my master's thesis in eating disorders. Then I got, there was office space available on the second floor of a really nice gym. In the second floor, you couldn't hear any of the music. You couldn't hear any of the banging weights or anything, you know, downstairs. Uh Uh, It was really peaceful and quiet. And you probably wouldn't be surprised, but maybe you haven't thought about it. A lot of the regular gym members uh, have body image issues. And a lot of those body image issues do morph into, at some point in time, an eating disorder, which mm-hmm. is just a, an unhealthy relationship with food. Uh-huh. You can binge, you can purge, you can restrict. Uh, there are lots of ways that you can have an unhealthy relationship with food. Uh-huh. And those that regularly go to gyms oftentimes do Interesting. have issues. I want to know. Yeah, yeah, right. But now that you think about it, it seems pretty logical. Uh-huh. And that was the case here. Uh-huh. And so this was a, this was a gym that had 3,000 um active memberships huge local gym large reputation and it wasn't um, so walking in the doors of the gym you could go upstairs with no one noticing you and see a mental health professional Mm. without there being like a stigma if it were just a a lone standing office people were like they're going in to see a shrink they got issues Uh you know that's what Uh but no one would notice that you went upstairs to this gym you got a lot of people in athletic attire yeah right (laughs) a lot of sweaty people Uh we had water bottles available we had all sorts of stuff because yeah they would either exercise or they'd be getting ready to Uh exercise they'd be in tank tops and shorts but we would be talking about childhood trauma Mm. you know upstairs And, and body wow. image and self-concept. Yeah. That ended up being a huge referral source hmm. was was within um, the walls of that gym hmm. where my office was actually located. Uh-huh. That's where your office was the whole time? Yeah. Oh. For the f- four or five years, somewhere between four and five years. It was just on the second floor of a gym. And I absolutely loved it. Um, I was actually looking. So we're almost up to applying yeah. here to Regent. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I was actually looking for a larger office space, but I was a little bit bummed because um, it was such a good fit to be uh, to be where I was inside the gym building, where you know people visiting me, no one really knew um, their business or, or that that was uh, uh-huh. they were seeking help or anything. Uh-huh. But I was looking because I was I was really it was just a one room office, so my desk and everything was off to one corner, and then on the on the second half was. Um, the couch and chair and some activities for kids that I worked with and stuff like yeah. that. So, 
So really nothing, there was really nothing. You said if you got sued earlier, they could only pull from the business? Yeah. Like, yeah. They'd be wildly disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, so you worked there for, you said, four years? Yeah, between four and five. I think, uh, I think had we moved here to Virginia in July, and had we made it to October, we would have hit the five years. But I, I stopped seeing clients at the end of May, beginning of June. Mm-hmm. So right at about four and a half years, I think, mm-hmm. I had that office. In your office, did you have any like bust statues of psychologists or your heroes or something? Regrettably, no. No. Will you next time? Oh yeah, for sure. Nice. I did have some um, Da Vinci um, oh. trinkets out on my desk. I really, I think Da Vinci is a really fascinating character mm-hmm. because he was so he was so good in so many um, it, like incongruent ways like he was artistic and an engineer so he can do math and create like you know that's <laughs> yeah. his corpus callosum connecting his <laughs> hemispheres must have been pretty pretty thick and active uh-huh. um, but i just find him to be a fascinating character and somebody worth studying and so i had a lot of da vinci stuff and i lived in italy for a little bit so oh, yeah. um but i didn't have any any like jung or yeah. freud or yeah. carl rogers <laughs> carl rogers would be cool yeah Okay, so uh, four or five years, and then what? at what point did you decide to start applying to grad schools? Yeah, yeah, so at about um, the three-year mark, mm. roughly, uh, I, I went home and I told my wife, um, I'm getting too many referrals from psychologists, and she goes, what do you mean? And I go, I want to do what they're doing, <laughs> and I want to uh, then keep them in-house. Mm. I want to keep those... Um, treatment if you have a treatment recommendation i'd like to be able to offer that service uh-huh. but up front i'd like to do the assessment the diagnostics and then if there were treatments that i could offer i'd like to keep all of that bundle together like your supervisor the site supervisor exactly yeah. um and so she goes what's that going to take and i was like a doctorate yeah. and uh <laughs> honestly i don't know if we would be here had she, had my wife not just and she was as excited as I was about the prospect of pursuing a doctorate and uh, being able to expand my professional services uh-huh. and um, being able to retain clients for a longer period of time and offer them a, a variety of things. So we started looking into, that was about the three-year mark. We actually let it marinate to see like the feasibility of it. Yeah. Um, we started to just superficially Google doctoral programs. At that point... Um, we had, because of Gaston, um, Rougineau, we did know that a PsyD was a thing. Uh-huh. Because I was like, what are the letters after your name? Uh-huh. Uh, that was the first time that I, you know, I thought PhD was the doctoral level yeah, in psychology. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so we started looking into the differences of what program time looked like. Um, it was about seven years average for a PhD hmm. and five years average for a PsyD. Um, because I wasn't like fresh out of undergrad or anything, I was getting a little bit older. I was like, well, I'd rather have the, the faster one. And then there was a, um, a real focus on PhD programs for research and for PsyD programs for, for clinical mm-hmm. engagement. Uh-huh. And I was much more inclined to, to take the clinical, uh-huh. um, yeah. the clinical direction. So then we started looking, and, and we're looking, uh, you know, six to nine months. We're just like, well, what are the PsyD programs that we're interested in? And it ended up being the University of of Denver, um, the Indiana University of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. um, Wright State, and Regent, and Texas Tech, which was a local 
University where my wife actually got her bachelor's after her two-year nursing program. She got her bachelor's because her employer paid for it and gave her a raise. And it was like, okay. <laughs> Just like some managerial classes. It was a super waste of time. Um, but Texas Tech was a local community where we could keep our house, remain in the uh-huh. name. We loved where we lived and the school district we were in and everything. But it was a PhD program. So that was, that was definitely number five on the list after Colorado, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. Is Regent the only Christian school you applied to? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't even... I think um, Biola is another one. Uh-huh. And I think... Uh, what's the one in Chicago? Is it in Illinois? Wharton? Wheaton? Wheaton. 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 No. Those are three of like only, I think, five. I think, I think six. Six. Okay. Yeah. So it's a really short list. Six APA accredited Christian society yeah. programs. Yeah. yeah. That's another good point you bring up. <laughs> As we were looking into the difference between PhDs and PsyDs, where these programs were located, um, what they what they uh, offered as far as uh, training and kind of building your professional identity, uh-huh. we got looking into um, uh, do we want it to be a Christian um, based program like my master's was at Lubbock Christian University, which I really, really liked. Uh And for the better part of a decade now, I had established myself as kind of a Christian mental health specialist. And uh, and so that did play a role in um, when our applications were sent out, interviews were done, and offers were put out there, Mm -hmm. um, Regent made the most sense checking all the boxes. Another factor was we were looking into job opportunities for APA versus non-APA programs. And although I'm very sure I want to be a private practice practitioner and, and do my own thing, uh-huh. um, it's not a door I'm willing to close that all the institutions, the hospitals, um, the, the um, inpatient psych treatment centers, they all like APA accredited yeah. uh, training. Yeah. And I thought, I don't. I'm not willing to just make those make myself unavailable to those opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know, you never know what hard times you can fall upon. No. Um, no. And with Regent being APA accredited and Christian school, and what's funny is going all the way back to when we were newlyweds in 2010. Uh, my wife and I always talked about having like a little adventure on the East Coast for like four uh-huh. years, uh-huh. and then just like moving back to like reality, <laughs> well, go, sanity. Yeah. Uh-huh. It checked so many boxes uh-huh. applying to being uh, um, admitted to Regent, uh, the you know, and the and the PsyD program uh-huh. and Christian uh-huh. AP accredited, all of it. Um, it checked a lot of boxes for uh-huh. us to end up here. Why did you with the places like uh, Wright State and the you said. There was a place in Denver you applied to. Mm-hmm. Were those all location-based or program-based um, like factors that led you to apply to those? Yeah, they, they were kind of a... They hit the algorithm just right. Uh-huh. So all of them were highly ranked, high academic standards. Uh-huh. Um, they all had uh, re-upped their APA accreditation for long extended periods of time. So um, I noticed some programs were either APA accreditation was on probation or suspended, mm-hmm. and that just sounds like programs uh, struggling and then maybe not doing right by their students. Uh-huh. Like you gotta, you gotta cross your T's and dot your I's. If yeah. you're, you know, with an, boasting being an accredited program, then halfway through your students are losing that potentially in their training. Yeah. I thought that there was a, there. I wanted a good track record. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. of of um the program's standing uh-huh. yeah and you the yeah i had no idea 
when I started applying that APA accreditation was so big. Um, but researching into it more, I found that the, just the benefits of an APA accredited program far outweigh not. Like, why not? If you're going to attend, why not? And um, my wife re- uh, contacted the Air Force recruiter for the... They do like this um, scholarship where they'll pay for two or three years of your schooling and then you serve for two or three years to kind of pay them back for it. But they, the, one of the first questions I'll ask you is, is your school APA accredited? Because if it's not, you're not getting in. Yeah. yeah. You're just not competitive enough. Yeah. I, I think that it's a real, um, they know the standard to which you were trained. Hmm. Um, because all of our, every class syllabus uh-huh. and every every probe rubric, I was hearing this from uh, Dr. Ripley, my, my supervisor this year, uh-huh. All of these documents are sent to an APA body. Um, they're reviewed by the program director, then reviewed by the dean, and then reviewed by the APA itself oh. in order to be at the level that they need it to be mm. and, and to meet the standard that's expected. Uh-huh. And so I do think that employers, going from basically a blank slate, you're, you are just a, a name on a piece of paper. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a real backing to... Uh-huh. like. How bad can it get? Well, if they went through an APA accredited program and met all of the requirements, it can't get that bad. Mm-hmm. And then I do think some programs really cut corners and don't give you the exposure that you need by mm. the time you're you're done with your doctorate. Yeah. So. yeah. So we're basically up to where we are now, right? So this so schooling, you hate academia, right? I do. You don't like classwork. Hate's a strong word, but it fits okay. perfectly. Good. No, hate is. <laughs> I, I, yes, I do. I I, <laughs> I truly hate academia. I I don't like the subjective nature of grading. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the tenure is a nightmare for um, anybody that's pushing themselves to be their best. I think having mm-hmm. that type of uh, safety net is. Um, going to create the worst version of you in the long run. Mm. There's a lot wrong with academia, in my opinion. Uh-huh. Um, I do think that they also want to cookie cut you into um, a similar versions, uh, a, a similar version of the same product, mm. um, where they're going to sweep your feet out, your individuality, your uh-huh. uniqueness, uh-huh. what you do different and could offer the industry. Uh-huh. Um, I think that a lot of those uh, aspects are removed from your identity. Yeah. I, I was reading a book on psychoanalysis and it was talking about there was this guy talking he was a professor and he said one of the biggest um, one of the most shameful things I see is you have all of these students coming in with all these different personalities and individual perspectives and their own life stories and they come in here and then they think that we are what we are teaching them is all that they need to use or incorporate. So we give them interventions, we give them interpretations, we give them these things to use in session. And then they lose their individuality and their own personalities and they just try to fit the mold of a psychoanalyst. And he said that's one of the biggest, uh, one of the most shameful things that, in his opinion, of the kind of the, the first few years of academia or students that you just, you like, you forget who you are and you just try to use, focus on these rules that you're being taught and that's kind of like with clinical interviewing me and me and Erica were talking about um, she said for like the first few months of her actually doing therapy she feels like she just fell back she didn't really try to incorporate herself she just fell back on the clinical interviewing class and what we learned and just basically fit the mold of a 
of a therapist, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think Erica's approach is extremely common. Uh-huh. There's a, a, a fear element uh-huh. of, because these are pro-based standardized courses. Yeah. And if you step out of line to be an individual or a free thinker, mm-hmm. that you're not going to meet the standard of training and you're going to fail. Mm. And th- the problem with that isn't the one-time experience because like a rubber band, you can just snap back to who you were after you passed that probe. Uh-huh. The problem is it's probe after probe for five years. Mm. Mm-hmm. And by the end of half of a decade, um, I hear a lot of people say that they almost needed to re refine they needed to find themselves again or reinvent themselves back to mm. the value system um, the interpersonal engagement that they um, that they believe most in or that they see themselves most mm-hmm. in um, after a program really kind of knocks that out of you yeah this might be a bad analogy but um, there's a saying that if you want soldiers get them while they're young because then you can shape them and mold in, into the soldiers that they need to be and for especially for students that are coming straight out of high school and then undergrad and then to a doctoral program, um, yeah, all of those, all of the probes and everything, all of the standards, you're gonna learn that that's, you're gonna take it that that's how I'm supposed to be and that's how all therapists are. Whereas people may be coming in in their 30s, they might, they might lose themselves for a little while if they are serious about passing all of their classes. Yeah. Um, but then maybe have to kind of reintegrate who they are. Yeah, yeah, most certainly. In fact, I was having a similar conversation with, with Dr. Ripley, um, mm. maybe two or three supervisions ago, uh-huh. and she was saying the ideal student, she goes, this isn't ideal to me. This is ideal to um, successfully navigating and completing this program mm. is a 25-year-old female. Mm. They're... Um, they can be convinced. They can be. They're malleable. They're mm-hmm. almost like that um, unshaped clay. Mm-hmm. And and the program's really good at taking that template uh-huh. and and turning it into the finished product. Mm-hmm. Um, and to her, that she. Well, I don't want to speak for her, yeah, yeah, yeah. but what she was saying was statistically uh-huh. that seems to be the model for most success with the least failures, the least dropouts, mm-hmm. uh, the least breaking points where the program kind of needs to put you back together like Humpty Dumpty because you're just falling to pieces. Um, it seems to be the least disastrous setup Interesting. is a 25-year-old female. Mm. Um, so take that for what it for what it's worth. Um, if you do come in here too individualistic, I do think that you're going to end up um, having to... Um, having to very carefully choose your words and... Uh, and you're almost on eggshells navigating a lot of these um, these standardized tests in order to satisfy those that are making the decisions that you can move on. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't want to like lose yourself so much that you can't recognize yourself in the room with a real client. Yeah, yeah. So when it when it comes to our our second year, um, so last last week I I spoke with Susma first year and we talked kind of about just to give people an idea of what a first year in a PsyD program looks like and so uh, second year first semester of the Regent University PsyD program um, that's when we start our clinicals and we start it here at the Psychological Services Center so we actually start seeing clients uh, what class do you remember what classes we took first semester 
that's so funny. It was less than a year ago. Yeah. Um, treatment planning with Dr. Bob. Uh-huh. Treatment planning. <laughs> this is so long ago. <laughs> Psychotherapies with Garcon. Uh, no. Psychotherapies too. Psychotherapies too with Dr. Page. Yeah. Okay. Um, we started our practica, present the case conceptualization uh-huh. um, and consultation. Was psychotherapies too first semester or second semester with Dr. Page? It might have been second semester because I remember thinking we could use it as we were beginning in this, in the clinic, but we were getting it in January. Mm-hmm. I think it was second semester. Huh. Okay. Um, was it research design where we had done yes. statistics first year, but then we kind of build on that. We choose our dissertation topic. We do a poster presentation uh-huh. and there was biological basis of behavior or was that second semester? That was second semester. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so it was research design, treatment planning, um, practical case consult- consultation. And one more. I don't remember the other one. Me neither. Yeah. But, yeah, so you basically summed up the research design. That's we. Uh, I talked to Susma last week about statistics, mm-hmm. and I remember being terrible at statistics in undergrad. It was like the worst grade I had gotten in all, all the years. And then, uh, but here we got to use SPSS, which made things a lot easier. And then research design, we did some more SPSS and statistics, and we just looked into research articles, right? And made the poster, like you said. And then uh, treatment planning. Can you talk a little bit about treatment planning? Yeah, so um, a more difficult class than it would appear on the surface, Uh uh, but very, very helpful, I think, in, in, when you take on a client, um, it reminds me of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen R. Covey. Mm-hmm. Um, one of his habits is start with the end in mind, and treatment planning is the epitome of that. Mm-hmm. It's um, how, where are you going to, um, where would you like to end this case, even, even as you're beginning it. So you're establishing what um, goals are, mm-hmm. uh, even how to state goals. Um, you're establishing um, what the steps are that you'll be taking to reach that goal. You'll be establishing the treatment procedure. So there are lots of manualized treatments um, that fall under umbrellas like cognitive behavioral therapy or uh, any, any number of manualized treatments um, that you'll be using according to the, like, ref- the reason the client came in and sought help mm. and um, the established goals that you're collaboratively um, creating with the client uh-huh. and then um, yeah how you're going to go about um, assessing your progress so any like um, treatment outcomes measures like the OQ45 or something um, you can do a symptoms checklist you can do depression or anxiety inventories um, pre mid and post treatment these are all things you're thinking through what you would like to use, how you would like to use them, how often you would like to use them in order to get where you've established you would like to go. Mm. At which point, you and the client have agreed up front that treatment would no longer be Mm. reasonable or necessary, Uh that they would be in a place to be able to return back to their previous level of function. Uh And uh, that's treatment planning in a nutshell. And um, it was a sneaky, difficult class, but I think yeah. that it was one that got people <clears throat> to recognize, and I'm so glad it was first semester when we started in the PSC, uh-huh. because I think it got people recognizing how complex and detail-oriented a case is, mm-hmm. that you don't just do an intake 
and you hear a story and um, and then you say okay well yeah we can spend some time together and 60 days from now we'll just check back in and see how you're feeling it's that's far from the treatment we're offering and, mm-hmm. and I do think that a lot of people that was a, a growth class for a lot of people in realizing how serious yeah the yeah I failed is. that probe the first time I had to take it a second time and for me I still one of my weak areas is so we also talked last week about we learned about uh, in psychotherapies one CBT DBT and act and so in treatment planning you also by that time you've learned also about IPT and TLDP, no, maybe not TLDP yet, but she talked about IPT, I think, in the class. I think she did too. Um, so you have like, around that time, you have four different modalities that you could conceptualize a case from, and each of them have their own language and ways of articulating what you're trying to accomplish. And then, um, yeah, so, uh, I th- and like one of the things I liked about that class was kind of conceptualizing it, uh, each case as, okay, this is like a therapeutic contract that we have, and at the end, how will we know that what you came for has been accomplished, or how, we know, how will we know that I did my job? And so that's kind of the where you do the goals and objectives, and um, that was very helpful, I think. And I'm, I'm also glad that we did it in the first, the first semester. Um, yeah, I think that was a difficult class for a lot of people. And it's still one of my weak areas, I think. It's plenty. It, yeah. You know, it, it is one of mine as well where um, in the middle of treatment, mm. uh, I, I don't like to box myself in with a pre-planned session uh-huh. and or much less uh, consecutive sessions where, uh-huh. I, you know, these are things we're going to address and talk about because I do think in real time dealing with life stress on the skills that we're working on and um, building that or at least shifting and clarifying that self-concept are such important pieces of treatment. Mm-hmm. You almost can't prepare for that because you don't know what's going to be asked of you um, as as you're treating a client. No. Um, so I would say that I, because we all err in, in every in every decision we make as a clinician, it's always a judgment decision and, and we're always gonna make an error where we don't hit the mark perfectly. Mm-hmm. And I think that I consistently err a bit on the side of um, less structured, mm-hmm. less structured. Yeah, because even in the treatment planning, the probe, you have to list session one, we will do this, session two, we will do this. Yeah. And I, I remember using a CBT, like a manualized treatment approach and but then in, in reality, I'm seeing clients and I think, okay, so today I'm going to talk about this certain topic. And then uh, within the first 30 seconds of the session beginning, my client's going off about something that happened this week that takes us completely in a different direction. And then you have to decide, okay, do I kind of, let, do I kind of stop them and bring them back to where the structure is and what I've decided that we need to talk about today in order to arrive by session 10 where, we, where we're trying to get to, or do we take a detour? And so, yeah, that's that's a very common, I think, occurrence. I think so too. Yeah. And it, it requires a high level of intellectual flexibility. Mm. And um, what I've found to be really useful is upfront, I have a couple go-to activities and skills mm. <clears throat> that will, uh, statistically be useful 
down the road in in a lot of different um, in a lot of different scenarios. So, for example, one of the activities that I like to do at at the beginning, uh-huh. almost like you said, thirty seconds into a session, you're already diff- There's no way to prepare for that. There yeah. just isn't. You don't know what they're going to bring to you. You don't know how it's going to have affected them. Uh-huh. The value cards is one of my favorite activities up front uh-huh. because then when they tell me. Uh, something that happened the past week and how it affected them, it it makes so much more sense why it would have affected them that way when I know what their values are. Mm. And so I I try not to skip just a few, um, either activities or skills or or both Uh in an ideal world, Uh within the first like two sessions Uh because then I can can reference, were you able to try this skill in that moment that you were feeling Mm. hyper hyper tense? Uh Or when you were shutting down and you noticed yourself not wanting to leave your your bed, yeah. um, did you did you think of this skill? Things like that that um, are reference points uh-huh. or activities where the values help uh, really shed light on why they would have been affected a certain way. That makes a lot of sense. How how about you tell us about? You've mentioned before your um, you do a victor versus victim mentality and your and your therapeutic approach often can you tell us about that can yeah you give, give me the speech <laughs> <laughs> um okay right off the top of my head okay. so oh, for a little bit of context here <clears throat> this is most likely the most common conversation i have hmm. regardless of why the uh, client sought help and regardless of their age um maybe 16 or older, okay. then it's regardless of their age. Because uh-huh. the con- the concept needs to be understood and internalized uh-huh. um, to be able to be impactful and, and used long-term. But, you know, a teenager can understand the idea. And this happens to be so regular because it, it helps um, build up the individual's sense of um, confidence and, and uh, their... Um, sense of self in navigating a really difficult world Hmm. the threats the dangers um, the responsibilities okay so it helps establish how they view their their self uh, as opposed to what's being requested of them Mm -hmm. Um, so the victim versus victor idea is you can either believe that uh, the world is out to get you and that others would like to take advantage of you and that there's really nothing you can do about that, that um, you're too weak to, um, to stop these uh, victimizations from happening, mm. and you're going to find yourself in a perpetual cycle of being under the thumb and under the control of somebody else um, or a, a group of folks. What I have found is those that take the victim mindset, um, they, they will believe that... Um, even people at church or at work or in their family life are uh, constantly attacking them. And and the attacks look a lot like requests that they're incapable of mm. um, fulfilling. Of fulfilling. Oh. That's exactly right. And so they say, why would this person make that request of me? Um, they And then they start, they start applying certain motives um, that that put the oppressor and the oppressed in in kind of a, a paradigm. Uh-huh. And that's a real mindset that a lot of people have, that, that people are out to get them, that society's out to get them. Uh-huh. 
um, maybe that um, you know even as far as like God the old God of the Old Testament uh-huh. that he's vengeful and, and full of wrath yeah. and that there's really nothing you can do to get in his good graces yeah. and the mindset will beat you down until you don't you don't see yourself as anything better than a worm that is um, that is not deserving of success or mm-hmm. blessings or advancements um, and you lose in tandem with losing your sense of self and your um, strength to move forward and navigate the world, in tandem with that, you lose your purpose and meaning in life. And Mm -hmm. so you'll find a lot of people that are battling with depression or anxiety and having suicidal thoughts um, or thinking that maybe I don't want to die, but I don't want to be alive. Mm -hmm. That's the mindset of the victim over time that they don't see the requests ending. Mm -hmm but they don't see their capabilities strengthening or, or, or increasing at all. Mm-hmm. And then the, so that's the victim. The victor is the individual that um, is, that sees themselves as able to manipulate the world around them. And it starts internally because it all, it, it, again, it's this sense of self and it's, this, it's the concept that you have. What are my strengths? What, what are my limitations? Um, what's being asked of me and how do I stack up to those requests and so this this victor sees the world as um, navigable and uh, not threatening Mm -hmm. but uh, more like someone that goes to the gym I'm gonna move a lot of weights I'm gonna gain a bunch of muscle but there's nothing stopping me from that progress and that's the victor mindset Mm. not that life is easy Uh And not that there aren't going to be responsibilities and requests and threats, but it's more of the buy-in. Mm-hmm. You buy into what you're capable of, and your energy levels rise, uh-huh. and um, you start to believe. And, and and then the feedback loop really starts. And both of these have a feedback loop. One is a negative feedback loop, and one's a positive feedback loop. Mm-hmm. But the positive one on the victor side is these small successes, and and they what they do is they create a. Um, a, a data bank that you can of evidence that you can go look back on and make a withdrawal from that tells you you're uh, capable that mm. you're valuable uh-huh. that you're deserving um, that God could love you because although you may have failed in the past there are these other successes and that you can make things right mm. um, there there are other ways of framing the victor versus victim yeah. um, Duality. There's the creature versus creator. So there's a creature of circumstance or a creator of circumstance. Uh-huh. So those that um, want to start a business, it, it's not. It's not that the costs disappear. It's that you see yourself able to pay that. Mm. And so you want to start a business, and you say, "Oh, well, I'm going to have to take out a loan, but that's fine because I'm going to hustle uh-huh. and I'm going to gain the clientele." Um, through my goods and services and, and you know sweat equity uh-huh. and I'm going to be successful and that loan's going to be able to be paid off and my life is going to be better for having gone through that. Mm. That's the creator of circumstances. Uh-huh. The creature of circumstances is things are out to get me. Uh-huh. I'm incapable of doing it successfully uh-huh. and I'm I'm not valuable or lovable. Yeah. There's a, I don't know if I told you about this or not but Erica showed me this TED talk and she was talking about even when it comes so she for a long time talked about how stress is bad how it's not um it's not helpful in the long run people die earlier from stress and then she made like this she was very uh 
you could tell she practiced this speech all over long periods of time. But she made this apology that she spent so much time talking about how bad stress is. And she gave this new research uh, that basically it came down to, she said, if you think about stress in a positive way, it's a good thing. If you, so she said, as an example, you face, um, maybe you're afraid of public speaking and you're about to, you're, you're next up for this presentation and you face, you start, your heart starts racing, your palms get sweaty and your body starts going through this, this cycle, right? And then, so she said, you can either look at it as, oh no, I'm anxious, something is about to happen and you can look at it like that and that's kind of a negative way of looking at stress or you can look at it as my body is preparing me for my presentation and it's getting me um, like in the mindset, it's getting me pumped up, it's it's giving, getting me alert so I can do a better job and, and all that. And so if you look at it that way, then that's um, people face stressful situations much better if they frame, if they have that frame of mindset. And then there's this other study where they show that people who voluntarily take on stress, um, the, the, I forget what it was, but they did a they did a study where people were faced with a stressful situation out of kind of surprise, and then there was another group where they faced it voluntarily, and the people who faced it voluntarily indicated less negative side effects. In fact, it was like positive, I think. So that's kind of a yeah very very applicable to that speech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I've heard it described as distress uh, versus eustress. E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, uh-huh. uh, so uh-huh. eustress. And I don't, I don't remember who the researcher was that was able to kind of um, pinpoint, locate, and define uh, these two different types of stress, but one is energy depleting mm. and one is energy increasing. And mm. the eustress is where you're almost excited about it because you have like all of your mechanisms and resources engaged in, perf- in a performance. Mm. And the outcome is... Uh, is more likely to be positive, and uh-huh. people are going to like what you have to offer uh-huh. um, because you're you're geared up for it. Um, whereas distress is like you just kind of cave in on yourself, mm. and and you feel that depletion of energy. I like that. There's this. Old, have you ever seen the movie Sidekicks with Chuck Norris? I have. No. There's this movie. Um, it's about this kid who daydreams that he's a sidekick of Chuck Norris. So he's on all these. You know, he's at school. There's a bully. And then he starts daydreaming about Chuck Norris coming in, and they're both on this mission together. And it's just the whole movie is like that. And then he takes up karate, but at the end of the movie, he's gonna fight in this karate tournament. And the actual Chuck Norris shows up, and he tells Chuck Norris that he's nervous about this fight that he's about to in the tournament. And Chuck Norris says, "It's okay to be nervous. It shows that you're about to do something meaningful, something along those lines." And I remember seeing that when I was maybe 11 or 12, and I always thought that was super fascinating. And, um, and I think I actually, whenever I, when I, I try to tell myself that when I'm nervous or uh, anxious about something, I try to say, oh, that just means I'm about to do something meaningful. And I think it kind of gets me in that mindset. And I was wondering, you played baseball, right? Like, and did you, what was it like? Like, so uh, going out into a stadium or maybe making your first hit or what, what were you a pitcher? I was a pitcher and middle infielder. Yep. Okay, so like maybe making the first pitch at the game or something. What was? Did you experience a lot of anxiety or? 
Uh, no, Not and I don't know why uh-huh. necessarily. If that uh-huh. was just I started at such a young age uh-huh. and I wasn't able to like really comprehend any gravity, uh-huh. and so I didn't really talk myself into being anxious. Mm. Um, or if it was a level of success early on that uh-huh. led me to being a team leader and feeling comfortable in that setting where other people could rely on me uh-huh. to perform at a certain level, uh-huh. and you know, you can really uh, one or two players that are distancing themselves in skill level and success from the other ones can really buoy a team up Mm. and i was blessed to be able to be one of those um one of those uh leaders of of our teams so i was never really anxious although i've played with a lot of anxious players Mm. and i have i have seen people with um extraordinary skill sets I, I mean, as far as pitching goes, that threw harder than me, that um, had more movement on their off-speed pitches. Um, position players that had great footwork and soft hands, and in practice they rarely made errors. I mean, they made plays that you shouldn't be able to make, and it's like, well, this person's going somewhere, and then they get in their own head um, in games. Or just in a it, – it can really be like – wrong timing Uh to have that outcome Uh and it's like your Achilles heel so there's actually a story it's funny you bring up baseball this is a story I share often with clients because they're emotionally disconnected from it but it's objective reality and and I've even heard clients say like I went home and I looked up this guy Chuck that you were talking about and what a story. So there's this baseball player named Chuck Knobloch. Now he's retired by now. He played through the 90s. He was a perennial all-star second baseman um, for the for the New York Yankees. And he was, I mean, every year he was in the running for, you know, a gold glove at second base. He was an all-star. He hit the ball well. He fielded the ball well. In one, one year in the playoffs, he made a really costly error. Hmm. Really costly, bad time to make just a just a an error on a play that had no business being messed up. Uh-huh. And after that, his his fielding um, took a precipitous decline, mm. so much so that they moved him to left field because anybody can play the outfield. Uh-huh. I mean, honestly, it takes like two days of practicing, <laughs> and you can read a ball off of a bat. You can learn, you know, angles. Uh-huh. Infield is all footwork and instinct. It's mm. first step. It's so fast. You have to know exactly where you're going. Um, you're you're the cutoff man coming in from the outfield, either going home or to a different bag. Infield, there's a, it's it's really complex. Uh-huh. Anybody can play out. They moved this perennial all-star second baseman after a very uh, a single moment error mm. that got in his head. Mm. They he ended up losing his spot. He got traded to the Twins. He got moved to left field, wow. and he fizzled out. He was headed to the Hall of Fame uh-huh. statistically. Uh-huh. He he's not even a household name. Wow, Chuck Knobloch. So you can look up this guy Chuck, uh-huh. and um, and and it can show how detrimental your mindset or how helpful your mindset can be based on the way that you view yourself. In in um. Uh, as as opposed to what's being asked of you. Mm. Do you view yourself as highly capable? And I have the practice. I have the muscle memory. I have the skill set. And there's a wealth of evidence for me to rely on. Even when I'm kind of second-guessing myself, why would I have been successful all these times and this time I'm not? Mm. It doesn't make any sense. I'm going to be successful. And you really buy into mm. your capabilities. Um, or you can cave in on yourself. And, and really you can just... Um, you can lose almost everything that you had built 
based on the way that you view yourself. Mm. That's a. Uh, that's kind of a. I mean, in a way, that's kind of a scary thought because there's this. Uh, Jordan Peterson says everything you do matters, but then everything you do matters. Like it's very weighty. It's a very weighty yeah. statement, right? And so to think that. To think that, if I'm going to. I can either adopt this mentality and do fine, or I cannot adopt it, and then I'm going to end up in left field and being traded. (laughs) (laughs) It's just washing out of the majors. A Hall of Fame trajectory to buy Uh while no longer picking up your contract. Yeah, Uh everything you do matters. Uh You know, I love love the weight behind that statement because if you're going to buy into people being out for you Mm -hmm. and you're going to play the victim card, that matters Mm -hmm. because your potential... First off, you have no idea what your potential is. Uh-huh. You just don't. You're we're all functioning at probably a minority of our potential, mm-hmm. and um, it, but it matters if you know if if we're going to cut our own legs out from underneath us, play the victim card, and never engage um, what we're capable of, never create, never um, increase that energy behind our efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, that matters just as much as those that are out there and that are highly productive and that we look at. And um, we almost look at with rose-colored lenses because they just everything they do seems to be successful. Mm. And they they have that Midas touch, right? It turns to gold, and yeah. um, those people have the same potential of caving in on themselves. Mm-hmm. They've just um, they've bought into that self-concept. Um, what do you think about the Sidey program? As far as so, we're about to go into our third year, um, but compared to your master's program as far as clinicals go or as far as the coursework on clinicals like take away assessment classes that we've been through um what is the what is the coursework like or how is it different Hmm. um okay so it's similar in uh sitting down and working through a treatment plan okay and um in the sense of once you have a a clearly defined need for help uh-huh. and and then getting the getting an idea of how you're going to go about providing that help mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of similarities so like your clinical interviewing skills your um, psychotherapy manualized treatments even <clears throat> macro even the theory that's going to drive the the um, kind of the imagery and the uh, narrative that you're going to put forth in in a session so that's the theory or the um the therapeutic uh intervention style like if it's going to be cbt or dbt or act or something those are all overlapping with um your mental health counselor degree Mm. and and your psyche degree okay where they differ is um and this is really important I think, and this has been somewhere that I have been so grateful to have uh, gone back to school. And it's weird for me to say that because we, <laughs> yeah. we already know where I stand on, yeah. on uh, education. Yeah. But um, it's we are better trained here in the PsyD program. When the client doesn't have great insight into their struggles, uh-huh. we can figure that out. Uh-huh. We're really good at digging. Uh-huh. Really good. The count. Okay, so if a if a, a third grader is struggling in school, can't really focus, not listening to the teacher, being a little bit um, belligerent and um, defiant, uh-huh. that th- that a parent brings that third grader in is like, there's some real struggles here. 
and then you ask a few questions, the counselor would be able to help out when the parents are like, well, the, the father just left. Mm-hmm. Like these all these symptoms all started two months ago and that's when his dad left. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, well, we can help you through that. That's like an adjustment uh-huh. issue, right? And uh-huh. you can and you can put together a good treatment plan for because you know what's going on there. Uh-huh. But if if the dad didn't leave and nothing changed two months ago and the mom's like, this kid's really struggling, there's, there's no history of this, mm-hmm. the psychologist is going to be thinking, ADHD stuff, working memory issues, processing speed, interpersonal skills. They're just better at digging into mm. um, when you have poor insight. Uh-huh. You just know that there's an issue. Uh-huh. There's distress. There's um, emotional dysregulation. Um, there's a shutting down and um, an isolation. Whatever, whatever, those are just kind of macro symptoms, yeah. but nobody really knows why. Yeah. The PsyD program has trained us much better mm. on our, our lines of questioning, our Socratic questions, our um, getting down to, to the um, core beliefs or the primary thoughts or, or primary emotions or getting to the, the meat uh-huh. of the issue. Uh-huh. The, men, the counseling area didn't provide a lot of sk- clinical skills in getting that sussed out. Interesting. That's good to know. Makes me makes me more grateful. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. When I was a counselor, um, it took it took a learning period, a growth period, for me to be able to get a good investigative approach that was still therapeutic and uh-huh. warm and welcoming because uh-huh. I'm a big Carl Rogers guy uh-huh. I would like to think the way that he had his clients feel when he was in the room uh-huh. that's something I'd like to emulate uh-huh. and strive for I think that's a great professional goal of mine and uh, <clears throat> when I was a counselor I I was working on um, doing that investigative line of questioning mm-hmm. based on like past history <clears throat> and the length of symptoms and the severity of symptoms and frequency of symptoms and all that um, while still making them feel loved and mm. everything. Um, and the reason I bring that up is when we were in clinical interviewing first semester of first year, mm-hmm. <coughs> Dr. Stevens, who taught that class, pulled me aside and she's like, tell me a little bit about like your work history. Uh-huh. And because she didn't interview me for, uh-huh. you know, to get into the program. In uh-huh. fact, once that she was a stranger and I was a stranger to her uh-huh. uh, when that semester started and she pulled me over just after she was able to see some of the um, uh, what are they called footage yeah some of the footage uh-huh. some of the uh, we would do laps we would do those laps where we did mock mock um, sessions uh-huh. and uh, so I let her know and she's like that makes more sense uh-huh. right because um, my partners Caitlin and Beth uh-huh. would be like providing either something that was real or something not but we never really do so we were just going with that information uh-huh. they would be proud of that and all of a sudden like that mechanism would engage mm-hmm. on like we're going to figure out where this is coming from <laughs> and it was funny because Dr. Stevens was like we don't need to do that here <laughs> and she's done it so lovingly it's not yeah. like I was in trouble or yeah. anything but she's like this is a really beginner level mm-hmm. um course and this is clearly something that you've been doing for some time mm. and so she just asked me to slow things down um <laughs> so that the rest of the students didn't you know yeah, yeah. get the wrong impression of yeah. what the, that the class was supposed to be doing but that's nice that. funny. she's she's so sorry. how is it for you to slow things down <coughs> really good it was really good <laughs> okay interesting 
You didn't feel like you were being held back or something. I did, and it was frustrating. Okay, and it was a really good pride check. Mm. Um, that I there were things that there have been things that I have been able to learn, incorporate, grow from from every course thus far. Okay, and what's really interesting. Um, is my wife and I, when we applied to the programs, we got accepted, then we chose Regent. When all of that happened, we were offered um, to give the syllabus and the uh, course number and everything from all of my master's courses for credit hmm. um, here in this program uh-huh. so I didn't have to retake classes. Uh-huh. And my wife and I were like, you know what? If we're doing the program, we're going to do the whole thing because there's always something to learn. Mm. So it was more tuition, Uh uh, more time. Uh But that was our commitment to taking it seriously. And I'm I'm actually quite grateful. It's been been more of a sacrifice. Uh um, But I'm actually quite grateful because slowing things down... Uh Uh, has been really, really good for me hmm. to and and to and to, to check my own skill level. Uh-huh. You, I think you'll find um, four, five, six years into seeing clients that you're going to need to be conscious of um, getting in a rut hmm. or or on repeat hmm. or just um, autopilot. Hmm. And it's like, hold on a second. Every client that I've seen is so different. I can't just. I can't just be a mockingbird and say uh-huh. the same thing over and over and over. Uh-huh. And this has been a really good um, reminder of that for mm-hmm. me. Yeah. A few things. Uh, first, another another quote that I recently read was that um, for each individual client, you have to basically reinvent therapy or reinvent psychoanalysis in the context of what I was reading. But so that that's what that makes me think of. Two, um, as once you finished your master's degree and you practiced for four or five years, um, there was no, there's no way, there was no supervisor experience for you. Like no one watched you perform therapy. You didn't rewatch your sessions. Like so, in a big way, once you develop your habits in the beginning, you carry those through with you. And unless you notice them in session, you're not gonna know to make changes right right yeah so that yeah I, that makes sense a big benefit of what school could be and kind of the last question you mentioned carl rogers earlier and what do you think about what do you think about his idea of um uh what is it, the positive re- unconditional positive regard what do you think about that <coughs> just generally what i think about it uh-huh. specifically um well, let me give you context. Yeah. So yeah. I was listening. I was listening to this guy, and he was talking about um, what he he says. It's not even unconditional positive regard. It's not even positive regard. It's just regard, because in his idea, he'll have people come in and he'll side with like the best part. Like, okay, what do you want to do? Where do you want to end up? Who do you want to be? And then what part of you is trying to prevent that from happening? And then they kind of distinguish those, and then he says, I'm going to befriend this good part of you, and this part of you that keeps preventing you from reaching your potential, let's say. Um, that's, we don't, I'm not, I don't want to give that, like, unconditional positive regard, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking it through. I don't know if he's talking about every single case. Again, if every individual client, you're going to basically reinvent therapy, right? But to me... Um, a lot of times people what is preventing them from reaching their goals 
is a part of them that's trying to be heard. And until you, until you find out what part of that is and how you can um, provide what it needs, or maybe appease it, or integrate it into their whole being, let's say, they're not. They're gonna continue to try and stop the positive part of them. Does that make sense? Yeah. So when it comes to unconditional positive regard, um, yeah. Does it? So in that, in that, in that realm. Okay. Um, to kind of found where I'm coming from, uh-huh. um, let me share the the church that I attend. Okay. Um, the primary. Uh-huh. I think I've shared this with you before. Um, the primary teaches a variety of songs, but one of the very first songs these kids uh, learn is called I Am a Child of God. Mm-hmm. And they sing it. So it's a wonderful little tune that's easy to memorize, uh-huh. but it contextualizes your worth. Uh-huh. And that's the worth of the soul, right? The worth mm-hmm. of the soul is great. I'm a child of God. Um, and and so through that lens, what I'm going to say now about unconditional positive regard mm-hmm. Um, it can be filtered through the idea that you're sitting across from, right? I, I see that I'm sitting across from a brother or a sister. Like uh-huh. We're all children of God. Uh-huh. And so there's already something that is so um, so valuable, you almost can't, you can't even state mm. its importance, its uh, worth. Mm. Okay, so that being said, uh-huh. there are, uh, I, I think um, oftentimes when clients come in, they do have like a fractured self and they're performing uh, a, a few different, they're acting out a few different parts of who they are, but at different times. So for example, you have like a young man that um, you know is dating a, a girl and they pray together and read the scriptures together and they um, are not having premarital sex and so they're keeping things um, really, really safe in that sense. And then he'll go home and um, view pornography and masturbate Mm -hmm. very this is extraordinarily common Mm -hmm. and these are these are not the behaviors of the parts of self that are um that are driven toward the same goal Uh does that make sense Uh um and so what you and so what i do is starting from the foundation of this is this is a son of god or a daughter of god Mm -hmm. that you isolate um the part of you that is incongruent with your principles okay. or your values, uh-huh. and and you really uh, and you address the drive behind why that keeps happening, um, and it's typically not that hard because the cost benefit analysis is is usually done um, already by the client, so they already know like what it's costing them, what they're gaining from it. Um, you you put that out in the open in in the session. And you have them take account for it. Like, I am accountable for having done this. Nobody else made me do it. Um, and and then you isolate that part saying that it's incongruent with your principles or your values or the way that you view uh, your spiritual self or, or your self-worth or your concept, right? Because mm-hmm. we're building that self-concept to become a victor. Huh. And and you say, um, you know, every, every now and again, that person's in the driver's seat, but what we're going to try to do is get them um, less often, you know, navigating the car steering the car Mm. and you isolate the other parts of them that are with their girlfriend and that they're doing extremely um uh self-controlled disciplined value-driven behaviors Mm. and you talk to them about the mechanism that they're engaging uh in order to make that happen Mm. and you build on um the 
the drive behind why you would treat your girlfriend in such a respectful way, mm -hmm. why it's important to you not to have premarital sex. Uh, why would you uh, read scriptures instead of, you know, fill in the no, blank? Like, no. there are so many other things that you could be doing. Scripture is not very stimulating, but you believe it to be the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And and so then what, what you're dealing with here is um, you're almost compartmentalizing who who they are as an individual, and they're functioning in different capacities. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to decrease the amount of power or control. Um, when they're not disciplined and they're falling into these unprincipled behaviors like viewing pornography. Uh -huh. and, and you're trying to say, look, that's not who I am and that's not what I stand for. Although it's an option that I have taken, it's not something that... Um, it's not something that I necessarily have to do. No one's forcing me to do it. And I can gain control by increasing the amount of strength in my um, principled self. Mm. Okay, so unconditional positive regard. You do not, you do not positively regard the, the part of self that is viewing pornography. Mm -hmm. And you can't be, because if it, that would be like um, giving a piece of candy to a child after they stole something. And you're just going to find, in my opinion, you're just going to find that they're more willing. They're not feeling the aversive effects uh -huh. um, of having stolen something uh -huh. if they're getting rewarded for it. Uh -huh. And so you let them know that that is, that is somebody, that's a, that's a part or that's an option that is actually going to end up with you compromising things that are of more importance to you. Your girlfriend isn't likely to put up with your pornography viewage and masturbation. Mm -hmm. Like that's something that's gonna fracture this relationship that is that is much more important to you. Uh -huh. And it's more important to you by evidence of the way that you've addressed it mm -hmm. with extreme discipline. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then you you unconditionally regard in a positive way, I don't know how to say it. <laughs> you know, you're you're unconditionally positive toward that person that is living the principled life. Uh -huh. And and it's it's um in my in my opinion and my experience, it is the um, the part of the self that doesn't get the attention or the uh, it doesn't get the rewards or is positively reinforced. It ends up just um, atrophying like a muscle that's not exercised, mm. and it will atrophy to a point where it doesn't it doesn't it's never back in the driver's seat. Uh -huh. It's underdeveloped. It's not fed. Uh -huh. It's um, it's gonna wither away and you know the reality of it will still be there as a memory uh -huh. of you know in my early 20s I struggled with this but now I am in my late 20s mm -hmm. and I've been married for two years and it's mm -hmm. not something that I've went back to um, so the, it's it's like a, a dead withered plant mm -hmm. well, it still exists yeah. uh, but it's not powerful it's not in control it's not something that you love it's something that happened and that you addressed by um, by building the strength of the other of your other part of self. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. It makes me think of the Bible verse resist the devil and he will flee from you. And it makes me think of that paired with um so you have these parts of you that like you you you've probably heard the the old story of the Indian with two what was it wolves or dogs and he fit, and he said whichever yeah. whichever one I feed the most will yeah. win. So it makes me think of all of that and how um, the pressure you know people who have the mindset uh, or the 
the pressure to maybe view pornography or to smoke cigarettes or to drink alcohol, whatever the whatever the case may be. Um, sometimes it gets so overwhelming that they just give in and they they do it to release the pressure that they're feeling to do so, right? And um, as I think the 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 best case example is someone who's maybe going through withdrawal. You can see them sweating and and crying out for for the alcohol or whatever it might be, but then they basically die to self and then they come out on the other side of that. And I think um, like with smoking, for example, I think after three days, three to seven days, the, the, the nicotine is completely out of your system and it's no longer the, the withdrawal is over and it's no longer a, um, it's no longer a drive to feed to, to like to have the nicotine anymore because the like the addiction to nicotine's over but it's more after that it's more about the habit or the hobby or whatever it does that make sense yep yeah you're i think after that um i've heard statistically day four is the hardest day four yeah yeah, yeah. um but i think seven days is kind of that mat like you cross the, thres- the threshold of it being <clears throat> out of your system and then uh-huh. it's a it's a mental game after that yeah. i think it's an attachment yeah um, yeah. I I used to smoke. I um I used to smoke like a pack a day. I spent when I was in the military, uh-huh. and all the way up from maybe seventeen till last year, and yeah, every every time I tried quitting around day three, going into day four, I would usually have a dream, and in my dream I would be I would either be buying cigarettes or I'd smoke one, and that was always yeah it was always around day three or four, um, but yeah that's just what it makes me think of is is after that yeah after that it's just a mental game and it's it's and for people who have done it for so long um it it takes you know the the mental game of it um it takes the that's a long-standing habit and it, and you have all these triggers like after i just got done eating or after whatever the case may be but um but yeah that's interesting it, it does it does kind of i don't think anymore i don't have dreams about smoking or I don't go into the store and think, oh, I'd like to buy a pack of cigarettes anymore. Like, once you're on the other side of that, you're pretty much clear. You might have every once in a while a thought, or but it's usually easier to kind of just know. That's not, I, I don't stand for that anymore type of thing, right? Yep, and yeah. it really <clears throat> parallels um, sugar. It parallels um, alcohol. It parallels a lot of addictions, even uh, video games. There's a lot mm. of research on the addiction to video games, mm. um, where once you stop feeding that that part of you, uh-huh. um, and, and it also it also makes me think of the saying, um, "Love the sinner, hate the sin." Mm. That unconditional positive regard. Uh-huh. I, I, if you were to offer it to that that broken, shameful, um, undisciplined part of of uh, yeah. flesh, uh-huh. right? It, uh-huh. It's all pleasure driven. Uh-huh. Um, if you were to offer that to the the part that um, the client crazy. that's bringing that client down, uh-huh. then w- why would it go away? Yeah. They're just going to end up being. Um, I, I accept myself for, and, and there's so many other narratives right now uh-huh. um, that are love me as I am, uh-huh. and it's. Uh, but you're, but you could be so much more. Uh-huh. If if you receive all the love and the positive feedback, 
for who you are now, uh-huh. there's no motivation to change. Yeah. Um, so maybe, well, I'll say this first. So um, I was also reading about self-esteem in children and how if you tell a child every single thing that they do is good, it's like, oh, you good job or you did the good good job on this and no matter what it is, they did a good job or then they're not, they're going to either grow up to think that they're entitled and they are, everything they did do is just the greatest thing, or they're going to grow up and not have a very good sense of, uh, they're going to deep down, they're going to have a sense of um, where does my self-esteem come from or what is it founded on if everything I do is good and they're much, children are much more likely to appreciate the feedback um a positive feedback from a teacher, let's say in school, who is usually very difficult or doesn't offer a whole lot of positive feedback. If they get positive feedback, then they're going to think, oh, wow, that was like in her eyes now or in his eyes now, I did something good. And that's a lot better than just everything yeah, across the board. And then it makes me think of, um, <laughs> it makes me think of, so the but the people who were talking about unconditional positive regard, maybe he just didn't make the distinction of the person sitting across from you, like you said, is a child of God or is a soul, a being. And for that reason, I'm going to give them unconditional positive regard. But then when it comes down to um, distinction and I'm going to separate the good from the bad and be on the side of the good, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah most definitely. Okay. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me today.